Welcome to the Lend Academy podcast, episode number 264. This is your host, Peter Renton, founder of Lend Academy and co-founder of Lend at Fintech. Today's episode is sponsored by Lend at Fintech USA. The world's largest fintech event dedicated to lending and digital banking is going virtual. It's happening online September 29th through October 1st. This year, with everything that's been going on, there will be so much to talk about. It will likely be our most important show ever. So join the fintech community online this year, where you will meet the people who matter, learn from the experts, and get business done. Lend at Fintech, lending and banking connected. Sign up today at lendit.com slash USA. Today on the show, I am delighted to welcome Brian Demir. He is the president of North America for Adyen. Now, Adyen are a European-based company. They're very big in Europe. They're a public company, and they're starting to get some traction here in the US. And also, I wanted to get Brian on the show just to introduce us to Adyen, talk a little bit about what they do and what makes them unique. And obviously, we talk about the challenges of the pandemic, what he sees as sort of the differences between the, the winners and the losers and how they've been able to adapt to becoming successful during the pandemic. You know, we talk about uh, anti-fraud, we talk about buy now, pay later, and he ends with a really interesting perspective on what we can expect to see in the future of payments. It was a fascinating interview. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. Thanks for having me, Peter. My pleasure. So you know, I like to get these things started by giving the listeners a little bit of background about yourself. So why don't you just give us some of the, the highlights of your career to date, particularly before Adyen. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I commonly say that no one gets a, a degree in fintech, uh, so everybody Correct. sort of falls into this industry. <laughs> Not yet. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I come from a product background, specifically in fraud prevention. That's how I got into the general fintech and payments realm. So prior to my six-year tenure uh, at Agian, I was at uh, Google and Airbnb, focusing on fraud prevention, mostly on the product side. And then actually, uh, when I came to Agin, I came on board as our first product manager when you know we were just a couple hundred people back in the day. We spent the last four or five years focusing on our product organization, diversifying our product portfolio, how we productize uh, things going out into market. Uh, and then earlier this year, I transitioned into leading up our North American operations. Right, right. So, so why don't you tell the listeners a little bit, little bit more about what Adyen does? Because while it's it's very well known in in Europe, and uh, uh, it's not quite that way yet here in the uh, in the US. So, just give us a little bit of background about the company itself. Yeah, it's it's a great question. Um, we've been around for over a decade, and we're a company that was founded by payments people. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had payments companies before, and they learned a lot during the 90s going into the dot-com boom and then into the 2000s about some of the common pitfalls that payments technology platforms were making. Mm-hmm. So, you know, from day one, we, we went into the industry with a really novel approach, which is to have one single platform across all channels in as many geographies as possible. So in short, we're a payments technology company that empowers other companies to reach their consumers across a really diverse set of payment methods. We offer hundreds of them, as well as geographies, as well as channels, all on one platform. And this is a really important distinction because most payments companies 
have multiple platforms. So if you want to do in-store payments, you're working with one platform, online payments, you're working with another. So with one integration, one set of contracts and one relationship, we can unlock many, many countries for the merchants that we service. Okay, okay. And so and what, what is the geographic footprint then uh, right now? Yeah, so uh, honestly, we, we operate all over the world from Europe uh, to APAC, Australia, South America. So honestly, the, the countries in which we do acquiring, it's over 50. And, and we do sort of core acquiring connected directly to Visa MasterCard uh, in over 10 regions. So generally speaking, you know, wherever the merchant wants to go to process payments, we're generally able to help them out there. Right. Okay. Okay. So then what's maybe explain exactly how you guys make money. Is this, do you make money on the, on the transactions like a processor or how does it, uh, is there a, a SaaS component? What's the, what is the model? Yeah, we operate under a per transaction fee and we operate under a really transparent model where the fees that are associated with the payment method or the network in question, whether mm-hmm. that's Visa, MasterCard or otherwise, those fees are transparent and generally passed through. And then there is a, a known component to Agent's cost of operating with our platform per transaction. Right, right. Okay. Okay. So then... You know, as I said, in Europe, you've been, you're a really big player. Your name has been around for, for many years as, as really one of the leaders in the space. Are you, how are you approaching the U.S. market where it's, you know, it's, it's competitive? Obviously, there, is, there are other, you know, big names here. What is your approach? Yeah, we're generally operating in North America in two ways. One is to be the global enabler for American companies, right? So whether that's, a Microsoft or an Uber or a Spotify, you know, they're based in North America and obviously we help them here, but they need to operate payments in dozens and dozens of countries. And and, and we're generally one of the players of choice to do that. But we also have an extremely strong focus on our North American proposition itself, our domestic proposition. Mm -hmm. You know, we work with really, really localized brands like eBay, Subway and Nike to bring payments into this market. Now, Commonly, North America and the U.S. in particular is seen as sort of a, a static market from a payments perspective. It's, it's always been credit cards will always be credit cards. But one thing that we can't discount is, A, the proliferation of new payment methods in North mm-hmm. America, whether you're talking wallets or uh, installment buy now, pay later options or whatnot. But really importantly, there's that demand to have a one platform player who can offer unified commerce. So it doesn't matter if you're doing in-store, online, we're able to offer one holistic view of the customer. And what we're finding is that there's a really strong demand for that in North America, especially under COVID, where more and more consumers are floating between channels where they used to be an in-store person and now they're an online person. And of course you have a grain between those channels. So we're finding that we're getting significant tailwinds with that segment of merchant looking for a solution like that here. So then how, how does it work exactly? Like if you're, so these companies, you know, they have, they've had online presence for a long time. Most companies have had an online presence. They've had, many of them have a physical presence. And you said there's often two different systems. So how is it that, you know, what, what's the difference between when, you, when you're going to a company that's got two different systems and what's the, like, like, it sounds like what you were saying is there's a difference even from the consumer experience. Absolutely. So let's take for a second the example of a quick service restaurant. And let's say that, you know, they traditionally had just the counter, 
right? You would go up to the counter and you would pay cash or card, whatnot. Right. You know, quick service restaurants have changed tremendously in the last five years. Not only do they have kiosks, but they also have in-app order ahead. And of course, there's costs and marketing money going into all of those channels. Now, let's say you had three different processors for those different channels, someone for the counter, someone for the kiosk, and someone for the in-app experience. That merchant is unable to actually see that consumer as they float between those channels because mm. there'll be different tokenization technologies and they can't even measure the cannibalization. But importantly to your question, Peter, they then can't track them as the same person and then reward them with loyalty. Right. So what we're finding is the advantage of our platform is, you know, you can dip your card in a terminal and then put it in the app later and merchants are able to recognize that and they're actually able to do things like card linked loyalty to the consumer and reward them for that loyalty between channels or at the very least passively understand that data and therefore understand where their consumers are going between channels. And this has been supremely important during COVID as merchants have been trying to understand, you know, where have my consumers been going? Did they drop off or did they just simply move to digital channels? Right. Now that I totally get that. That 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 sounds like a pretty compelling proposition and it might not have been a big deal back, you know, a year or two ago, but I can see how that would be a really a, you know, you want to you've got to be able to know when your customers are floating between between channels. That's just I would say table stakes almost, uh, I mean, these days. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So then I know that you you guys are a public company and I just, I do want to, you came out with your results. I just saw it was earlier this month, uh, a couple of weeks ago, whatever. Uh, so why don't you just, before we go any further, at least give us some highlights of what, what's been happening at Adyen as a, you know, as a global company. Yeah, so we, we announced our results and despite COVID-19 and its impact on retailers and the travel sector, we had an extremely strong H1. So we processed over $150 billion across our platform at a 23% year-over-year growth rate. We saw net revenues across our whole platform grow 27%, with North America in particular being at a 58% growth rate in net revenues. So while it is a challenging time, what we're finding is that there's tailwinds towards these digital channels. So when we saw, for example, retail shut down, right? A lot of stores were closed for either a few weeks or a few months, depending on the geography. We saw digital channels significantly uptick. But what we're actually finding as retail is reopening, some of that e-commerce volume is sticking around. Right. And what that's telling us is that consumers that might've in the past been hesitant to interact with a digital channel seem to be very, very comfortable with it. And because we tend to work with our merchants on digital enablement, this is having a really good impact, not only on our merchants, but on our platform as well, even during this challenging time. Right, right. So then are you, are you more focused then on the, on the corporate customer that's looking to be, I mean, you said you were focused just here in, in North America, but is there, I mean, when, when you're looking at your product suite, is this something that you're, are you targeting, you know, smaller companies or is this really for the larger corporate multi-channel type, uh, type company? Yeah, our, our focus tends to be enterprise. That being said, we're also focusing on our mid-market segment. That's been a focus of our company for the last year or two, pr primarily in, in Europe. That being said, 
Uh, we have efforts globally around that. But then what I wouldn't discount is our focus on platforms and marketplaces. We have a proposition called Agion for Platforms, which allows platforms to enable payments for many smaller sellers on their platform. So our general strategy when it comes to smaller merchants uh, is to do that via our platform partners. They tend to have that relationship with the end merchant and we empower them with our technology in the back end. Uh, right. This is similar to, for example, eBay and GoFundMe, for example. Right, right. Got it. Okay. Okay. So then you just you mentioned that you had a pretty strong, pretty strong first half. Like what has been, what are you seeing as far as in the, you know, you've got a great, a great insight into, you know, a large amount of commerce. And in, and there's there's been I mean you have to say there's been some really big winners and there's been a lot of there's been some losers as well and I'd love to sort of get your insight into what kind of is determining you know who is successful who isn't successful because there's been you know there's been examples of companies that are surprisingly successful in, yes. uh, in in this in this environment so I'd love to get your insight on that. Yeah, it, when we boil it down, what we've noticed is that merchants tend to fit into one of two camps. They were either digitally oriented going into COVID or they weren't. And that's not to say that they were entirely digital. There are plenty of merchants that started with an in-store experience, but then they started to grow out rich digital channels. Uh, the fact of the matter is that merchants that had rich digital channels recouped 40% of their losses compared to single channel merchants or merchants that had a really immature digital channel. And I'll just give an anecdote, right? Okay. I was on a road trip some months ago and this was sort of, you know, peak COVID times where everybody was socially distancing. I was camping for the record. And, you know, we <laughs> stopped on the side of the highway and, you know, there was, it was one of those highway stops that has sort of six chain restaurants. And I'm not gonna name names of course, but three of them were open and three of them were closed. Mm -hmm. Three of them already had curbside pickup online and in-app order ahead. And they'd been doing it for a couple of years. It had become a trend in their industry and they were clearly on the forefront of that. And three of them didn't yet have that. And therefore they were shuttered, the lights were off, right? And I think that is the sort of perfect encapsulation of what happened going into COVID-19. Right. But it's not all dire because the merchants that weathered the storm and didn't have those channels are now exploring how to make that happen very quickly. And the ones who did have that are now putting more focus and investment on that because, as I noted previously, we're noticing that that digital volume that spiked when those in-store channels went down are sticking around. So there's a whole new set of consumers and demographics interacting with these channels. Right. So, you know, what we like to say actually here is that, you know, we skipped five years in the industry. Yeah. Everybody was, all the trend lines towards digital enablement have just been fast forwarded across all consumer demographics. And in the end, that's likely good for the consumer. Of course, it's been a very challenging year for both consumers, of course, and merchants. Right, right, right. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I, I know that uh, here, you know, you know, I have a Chipotle right by, right by my house and right by my office. And they never closed down. I mean, they, may, they might have closed down for a week or two, I don't know, because I wasn't going out for a while there. But when I went back and they have a really strong app and a really good experience and payments as uh, uh, really, you know, it's, it's a positive experience. And that, you know, I see they're, they're, in, they're in with a whole bunch of other major chains and they, they were getting all the business for a while there because I was the only one open. And, uh, and again, it's just they, they, they had already gone down the digital enablement path 
and it I don't know what their hit what, what what how much volume they went down, but that's a that you know you need if you didn't have the whole app ordering and you could just come and pick it up, yeah, that was a, that was a major you know a real major negative. So I imagine then you've probably had companies coming to you in the last six months that have said we need integration and we need it like in two days. What, <laughs> how have you been handling that kind of, uh, you know, that, you know, that kind of situation? Yeah, that has happened quite a bit, right? Where you get a phone call in the middle of the night, we need to be live in a week, you know? <laughs> right. And it, because we have one platform, the advantage of that is that, you know, we have one set of consolidated APIs and a really rich set of open source libraries that allow merchants to, put the JavaScript on their page and they're up and running. Now that works for most merchants, but some merchants need it to be even quicker. And we've had a solution for some time, which is called pay by link, where systematically via API, you just request a link, we send it to the merchant, they give it to the consumer and it goes to a payments page that we host on our side. Mm -hmm. And what we found is especially in retail, there was very, very quick demand needed around these pay by link solutions because it required little to no development effort on the side of the merchant. We went so far as to also integrate that into our terminals and into the in-store experience because some merchants wanted to offer a completely touch-free experience, even if you didn't have contactless cards or wallets. So what we did is we presented QR codes on our terminals. That then with the phone goes to a pay-by-link session. The consumer pays in an e-commerce flow on their phone, but then it loops back to the terminal to the point of sale. So you're bringing a quasi e-commerce experience into the retail arena. So we've found that there's been significant uptake in these pay by link solutions as a quick way of getting started with these channels. And then we anticipate those merchants will then go into more and more native experiences as they invest in that channel. Right, right. I, I didn't realize that. That's. It sounds like it's. Um, I, I presume you know. Uh, I don't know how well you know Alipay and, and Ant's group. They're going. They're going public. Uh, filing to go public. We actually got a. We got a little bit of an insight into their financials, which is pretty impressive uh, in and of itself. And uh, and, and the, it's all QR code based. I mean, that's you go. I, I've been to China many times, and you go, and uh, I don't have. I can't get an Alipay account because I need. You need a Chinese bank account, but uh, everything is QR code based. Is that some, is that a technology that you think is ever going to take off here in the US? In short, I think so. We've been embracing QR codes for a long time. We partner with Alipay and WeChat Pay, and we're actually one of the predominant solution providers who offers that natively on a terminal all over the world. So our high-end retail merchants leverage our solution, not only for standard payments, e-commerce, but we've actually had a, a generic QR code framework for some time on our platform via our terminals. Now, the speculation is, will more and more payment methods in North America embrace QR codes? You see the beginnings of that, for example, with PayPal, for example, with buy now, pay later payment methods like after paying a firm. I, I would anticipate that this will begin more and more of a trend that obviously China and Asia Pacific in general kicked off some time ago with QR code payments. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing that you see Ant Group and they did like 16 trillion US dollars worth of volume in, which is yep. just staggering, I mean, globally. Yes. And it's a, you know, there are, and so, so imagine, I know you can, I see Alipay signs in, in airports in, in this country. So there's a lot of time, is that you guys of um, helping sort of enable that technology? 
Oftentimes we are, yes. Yeah. And uh, the, the main proposition that we offer is, you know, you have a Chinese consumer who's coming to your store and you can either have Alipay and WeChat Pay or not. And generally they'll have a Chinese Union Pay card in their wallet that they can still pay via sort of a traditional method, but they very much prefer this. Yeah. And yeah. studies have shown that uh, the consumer is more likely to buy if you give those options. And then there's a lot of co-marketing opportunities with both Alipay and WeChat Pay that, that merchants take advantage of as well. Right, right. Okay, so so uh, you mentioned buy now, pay later a couple of times now, and I want to I want to kind of uh, touch on that because it's it seems to me that you know I've been following a firm and following Afterpay, and I'm originally from Australia, and Afterpay is uh, it, yep. it's hard to state how big it is down there. It's uh, hard to, hard to overstate because they are everywhere, and it's now a verb in Australia uh, to Afterpay something. When, like you said, you're sort of agnostic to the payment method. Buy now, pay later is a little different than just, uh, you know, I mean, are you, like, where do you stand and, and how do you feel about the buy now, pay later movement? It seems to be getting more and more traction. Yeah, well, I, I would note what you just said, which is we're agnostic to payment methods. We offer hundreds of them. And the reason we do is that payments is a highly cultural thing different cultures pay in different ways. You go to right. Germany and cash is king. You go to Australia and to your point, Afterpay has been there so long, it's a verb. Now, generally speaking, the American consumer has had really good access to credit via credit cards. That being said, there's an untapped consumer who doesn't have access to credit, who needs facilitation of credit in different ways. And I think installments in North America is really tapping into that consumer base. And you see multiple players from Affirm to Afterpay to Paybrite to others really taking advantage of that. And from our standpoint, our, our platform can take on an unlimited number of payment methods. So as soon as there's the consumer demand and the merchant demand, we integrate that into our platform and we offer it with one integration to our merchants. So we already offer several buy now, pay later payment method options across geographies, including Afterpay in Australia, as well as Europe, uh, One uh, in uh, Europe, Paybrite, Klarna, so on and so forth. And we're investing in others into the near future. Okay, so then, so the merchant, if they're if they're a, um, let's just say, you know, you could use Klarna as an example, because they're they're really the, they're the one that started this whole movement many many years ago, and they're really strong in Europe. So if you've got a, a company that's all that that wants to offer a buy now pay later solution, they are an ad Adian customer. They could just turn on, and you can link them up with Klarna, and then suddenly it's it's available to them. Or is that is that a, is it, I'm, I'm making it simple, but is that is that almost as simple as it is? It is, and that's why merchants work with us because we can do that across hundreds of payment methods across many different geographies, and we offer that that one point of integration and contracting to do that. And from an integration standpoint, then you just need to make sure the front end is enabling that payment method on your website, and then you're good to go. It's that sort of ease of turning new things on as the trends change. And that sort of subscription to ongoing innovation, we call it with our merchants, that's right. what they're signing up for by working with Adyen. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay. So you mentioned that you have a background in, in fraud or anti-fraud, I guess I should say. Um, <laughs> I'd love to sort of get your perspective on how that kind of landscape has changed this year. I, you know, you hear anecdotally about there's certainly been increases in fraud attempts. Um, what has been your experience at Adyen and how, and how are you combating different forms of fraud? Yeah, the, the nature of e-commerce is that there's more to consider around fraud. 
Now, I'm not so sure if I would quantify the last year as more fraud attempts, but rather I would say digital channels are suddenly more important. And the nature of a digital channel is that you need to do more around fraud prevention. Right. You know, we don't have the same protections we have in store, like chip and pin and all of these different things. So there's simply no more to consider there. And, and merchants that previously might have had, I don't know, 3% of their overall revenue in their digital channels are now seeing 20, 40 plus percent. So the fraud that they see in those channels is compounding as well. Yeah, and I think you know, there's been a lot of change in the fraud prevention industry over the last years. I think the predominant trends would be around continued focus on machine learning and less of a focus on throwing human beings at the problem, which is the way the industry did things 10, 15 years ago. Adjun itself, we have a native fraud prevention engine built into our platform. We can take all the data points across our entire platform, track not only good users, but also fraudsters, understand their behaviors, run that through our machine learning models, and offer that in our one integration to our merchants. So instead of needing to go out and find a third-party risk system, integrate into it, you can get it with your payment processor with the Agent solution. And indeed, to your point earlier, we're finding that there's more and more attention being given to digital fraud by our merchants and therefore there's more and more of a need for a solution like revenue protect which is ours right right so are you are you saying then that fraud hasn't necessarily increased it's just moved online is that like if you look at overall fraud are you saying it hasn't really increased this year i don't know if i would be so bold as to say that i'm sure it's <laughs> a it's a factor of both i think right. the the main thing that's reckoning in the industry though is you know, losses, fraud losses that could have been in a small minor channel over here, your digital channel, were okay. And now if that channel is suddenly a third of your business as a company, you know, you're always going to have a, a certain amount of fraud in that channel. And suddenly there's a magnifying glass on that. That's probably the biggest trend this year that we're seeing with our merchants. There's the macro level trends, however, of fraud always being an issue. Um, there's various different types of fraud techniques going on around the world. And there's just simply fraudsters in many geographies that are going to continue other uh, attacks on consumers and on merchants and that's never going to go away right right yeah understood understood so then can you give us a sense i don't know how much you share publicly but can you give us a sense of how big the u.s operation is you talk about the whole thing does do you break that out at all yeah, I mean, uh, we, we break that out in terms of, of our net revenue, right? So 18% of our, our net revenue is North America. And now our San Francisco office is our second biggest office in the company. And we okay. just broke through the 200 employee mark in North America out of our roughly 1,500 employees uh, in Agin overall. So like I said before, whether it's our domestic proposition working with merchants like Nike and Subway or North American merchants that we're servicing around the world, uh, like your Microsofts and Spotify's and Ubers, North America is sort of central to our vision and, and central to our expansion strategy. Right, right. Yeah. And obviously, it sounds like you've got a lot of room to grow here, given given that, you know, the US is still the biggest autonomous market in the world. And, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And uh, it's like China's catching up, but still. Anyway, you know, just before I let you go, I would, I'd love to sort of get your some sense of, I mean, it feels to me like payments, the way we pay for things is sort of 2020, we're going to look back as this real inflection point that, I mean, what else, what other methods, I mean, are there other kind of, uh, you know, developments that, that are coming down the track that we, that, that, you know, you know, you talk, we touched on QR codes, but I'd love to sort of get, you know, for example, like, you know, Uber made payments invisible. 
Like you don't, you don't even know, you don't pay. You just sort of, it just gets charged. I mean, are we, what, what are some of the trends that you're seeing in the payment space that you're thinking down the road? Yeah, it, it, it's a great question. And we call what you just talked about the Uberfication of payments. Right. Uber really set a new expectation for consumers, especially in North America, that payments could just be this thing in the background. And, you know, we know as payments experts that that's done via tokenization and various different technologies. I would take that one step further, though, and express that the biggest trend we're going to see going forward is a melding of the difference between channels of what is e-commerce and what is online. Take, for example, your example of the uberfication of payments, but apply it to a normal in-store experience, right? right? For example, you have something like the Amazon Go experience. Yep. I think we're going to have more and more experiences like that where it doesn't matter what the payment method is. There's always going to be broad variations of that. Is it a credit card? Is it a wallet? Is it installments? Is it this? And there's going to continue to be proliferation of that instead of uh, in, in, instead of folding in. But I think the trend that's going to happen is there used to be this feeling that there was a stark difference between, okay, I'm online right now and I'm in store, but if I'm in the parking lot of a restaurant and ordering an app, what is that channel? It's not really <laughs> e-commerce anymore. It's not really in store. And then if you go one step further and we're empowering merchants for these sorts of flows, eliminate the steps altogether, just identify who they are and, and collect their funds in the background without those explicit payment experiences. And I think there's more and more trends towards reducing the experience, whether that's tap and pay, which, which takes it to just doing that, to the extreme, which is the Amazon Go or the Uber experience, which is that it's totally in the background. I think that's going to be the trend that's going to really be the hallmark of the next decade. And if merchants are working with a platform like Agin that's singular in its nature across all channels in one integration, they're going to be able to adapt that change in a seamless way without interruptions to their consumers. And that's sort of our core thesis that we present to our merchant base. Right, right. Well, it's going to be interesting because I feel like, as I said, we've, we've compressed five years into six months and, uh, I mean, it can't continue. I imagine the next five years aren't going to come in the next six months, but I can see that there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of exciting technology out there that's going to, that really will make payments just fade further into the background as we go forward. So interesting, interesting times ahead. Absolutely. Anyway, thank you very much, Brian. I really appreciate you coming on the show today. It was my pleasure. Thanks, Peter. Okay. See you. You know, I think the point of sale space is really been one of the most interesting, interesting, and I'd say even the hottest part of fintech. You know, buy now, pay later is certainly very hot. But really what's enabling this all are companies like Adyen that the, the, the consumer wants choices. The merchants that provide them with the biggest choices are going to, the most choices are going to really have a, an upper hand. And integrating with buy now, pay later, I could see them also integrating with other kinds of lending products. And you're going to have this kind of suite of options. Suddenly the credit card, which has been ubiquitous in this country for, for decades is, you know, is going to be one of many options at the point of sale. And as, uh, as Brian said, Adyen is agnostic to the payment method. And if that happens to be an installment loan over two years, I'm sure that they'll be, uh, they'll be fine to, to make that happen too. But whatever it is, I think it's, it, yeah, this decade, we're going to see a tremendous, a tremendous innovation when it comes to, you know, payments at the point of sale, online, in person, and uh, it's going to be exciting to watch. 
Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening and I'll catch you next time. Bye. Today's episode was sponsored by Lendit Fintech USA. The world's largest fintech event dedicated to lending and digital banking is going virtual. It's happening online September 29 through October 1st. This year, with everything that's been going on, there will be so much to talk about. It will likely be our most important show ever. So join the fintech community online this year, where you will meet the people who matter, learn from the experts, and get business done. Lendit Fintech, lending and banking connected. Sign up today at lendit.com slash USA.